In Matthew chapter 13, we will begin, uh, this morning we will have our second exposition of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to read this morning from chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and then 18 through 23. So if you would stand with me for prayer, and then we'll read from God's precious and holy word. Now, blessed God, we ask for Your blessing. Lord, that in Your presence with us here, Lord, that You would manifest Your glory, Your power, Your wisdom, Lord, Your saving mercies in Your Word to us. We would see it by faith. Lord, we ask that You would also strengthen, Lord, anything in us that would strengthen our resolve and commitment and faith in You. And that you would destroy anything in us that is in opposition to it. Lord, that you would bless this servant. Lord, as I speak and open my mouth, that it would not be anything of men or the traditions of men. But the sole, unadulterated truth of your word. So Lord, we pray that you would come and minister to us this morning. Heal us, strengthen us, encourage us. Lord, uh, our hope, all of those saving graces come and, Lord, make them strong in each of your elect, each of your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin reading at chapter 13, verse 1. Hear the word of God. And that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got in a boat and sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell by beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And now verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is the one on whom the seed has, was sown beside the road. And, on the one, and, and one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And thus ends the reading of God's word, brothers and sisters. Please be seated.
The first sermon in this series, I described to you what a parable was and how it differed from other forms of teaching. Now this morning, my goal is to bring to your attention the ultimate purpose, if you will, of this series of parables that we have looked at. There are three series of parables given to us in the Gospels, and this is the first series. Each series is marked by some confrontation and level of opposition, and it anticipates in the parables themselves, intensify as that opposition grows stronger and stronger. So we need to keep this in mind. If Alfred, Alfred, excuse me, Edersheim is correct, and I think he is in his studies of the Gospels, that this first series of parables primarily answer two issues. That is, these parables that we're going to be looking at over the several weeks answers two primary questions that have arisen through this opposition and confrontation. And that is, one, the Pharisees questioning by what authority does Jesus heal and cast out demons? By what authority does Jesus cast out demons and heal those who are sick? By what power does He do these things? And of course, if you, un- if you read your Bibles, if you spent any time in the Gospels, you should know that they accused him of casting out demons and healing by the power of the devil. They said it was demonic, that Jesus was possessed with a demon. Now that was their answer. That was their way in uh, sort of rebuffing the masses that are going out to hear Jesus teach the kingdom about the kingdom of of God. The second issue that was arising in Jesus' Galilean ministry was whether or not the crowds following him had any true relationship with him. That is, there were a variety of reasons why people were following Jesus, and we should never assume that, that any who follow religion or religious teachings are all true, genuine, and authentic. The question is, and the questions that came about was when Jesus' family, his mother and some of his brothers, came to see him, that Jesus did not hear their request to come and meet with them outside the house. He said, those who do the will of my Father are my brothers and they are my sisters. They are my family. So Jesus there is using this opportunity where he is visited by his family, as I pointed out last time, that this visitation came, more than likely came, from the opposition that Jesus is receiving from the religious establishment. Remember, those who are opposing Jesus was the religious establishment. And that opposition was increasing. The more Jesus did, the more heated their opposition became. And brothers and sisters, that's how we got to the crucifixion that the opposition became so fierce that the malice of Christ so increased among the religious establishment that they had to get rid of Him. And the book of Acts tells us that it was by the hands of sinful men they decided they hated Jesus. 
and they hated Christ. They hated what he was teaching and they wanted to get rid of him and though they crucified him. They, they created a, 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 a mockery of a trial and condemned him according to the law based upon false witnesses and they put him to death. They crucified him with common criminals. So we can see that this hatred and malice of Jesus Christ was, it began at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to see that in these parables. So the two questions, by what authorities does Jesus do these things? And who really has any relationship with Jesus Christ? Remember that even in Jesus' inner circle, there was a rebel. What's that rebel's name? Judas. Judas never was really of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He appeared to be. He looked like he was and participated in all the various discipleship activities, but he never really was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So listen to um, a quote from Alfred's Edersheim book on the life and the, the life and times of Jesus Christ. He said, it is here that the characteristic difference between the various classes of hearers lay. Now he's talking about the parable of the sower. All the parables indeed implied some background of opposition or else unreceptiveness. He goes on and he says, the first series of parables was spoken, which exhibits the elementary truths concerning the planting of the kingdom of God, its development, its reality, its value, and its final vindication. Now, brothers and sisters, the first observation that I want us to make as we begin the parable of the sower this morning is understand that the parable of the sower comes as a part of the whole. And now, now there's nothing wrong with taking the parable of the sower and making use of it as an individual parable. I have done that. Many preachers have done that. And there's a variety of ways to make use of the parable of the sower. Uh, not at all saying that we can't come and glean good and, and, and biblical principles out of the parable itself. But what I want you to see is that the series of parables given by this Galilean shore are part of a big picture that Christ is wanting to convey to his disciples and to those who are what we would call the elect, those who, whom God has elected before the foundation of the world, that they would, what? Hear the voice of their shepherd. And what does Jesus teach us about the good shepherd's voice? He says, my sheep hear my voice and they come. My sheep know me. They know me because I have elected them. I have chosen them out of this world. And so that's what we want to see. And here's the first observation. Understand that this parable is part of a bigger picture. Now, each parable may stand on its own, as I've already said, but it's in the whole of the series that we see the depth and its beauty. We see its meaning. Together, they form a complete picture and answer some basic questions concerning the kingdom of God. Now, let's think about this. Jesus is receiving some fierce opposition. It's... it's I mean, and you have to sort of understand what I mean by fierce is 
It's one thing to be opposed by a, another individual. It's a completely another matter when you are opposed by authority, right? I mean, it's one thing for us to be against one another, but what happens when the police department's against you? What happens when the government, the civil magistrate, the army, a nation is against you? The, the, the greater the authority, and you know, the Pharisees wielded a tremendous amount of authority in Israel, being called the keepers of the law and the, the, um, the ones who were the teachers of the law, they wielded a, a tremendous influence. And so that's what I mean by this fierce opposition that Jesus is receiving. I mean, to be called demonic is pretty, pretty just horrendous, isn't it? And yet that's how they were dealing with Jesus. They didn't have an answer, so what they wanted to do was you know, demonize Him, so to speak, and to sort of turn Him off to the masses of people. And this is where we need to see that if we see this, the whole series of the parables together, we can see the wisdom and the beauty and the glory of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ coming and addressing this opposition. I want you to think about following Christ. You're standing on the Galilean shore. You know the Pharisees are against Him. You know He's mounting. That He is continuing. As He continues to teach, what is He doing? He is just inciting greater opposition from those Pharisees. And you may be thinking, well, should I really listen to him? I mean, if Jesus is, I mean, if they're against Jesus, I mean, how, how long can this train go? Right? How long can we really continue to ride this, this train of this novel teaching, this new teaching, right? And that's what it said. Boy, he came and he taught with power and authority and the people were amazed. And, you know, you can imagine the excitement and somebody saying, hey, come and listen to this great teacher that I've, that I've been listening to. You need to come too. And guess what? Sometimes he feeds us and it's a really, it's a good thing and, and it gives you an excuse to stay out of work, you know, it gives you an excuse to leave home and all of these things. And so Jesus had just collected a mass of people, but you have to to understand that the people wonder really how long is this going to last because he is inciting some pretty fierce opposition. Now Jesus is going to answer those questions. And he does that by teaching in parables. Let, let's look at the broader picture here and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Now in the parable of the sower, in the parable of the sower, uh, the Lord Jesus answers the question of the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, we already know if we started reading the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He came preaching repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And He came and He told the Pharisees in chapter 12 when they were accusing Him of being demonic, He said, listen, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you when you see the Son of Man, the Son of God, casting out demons by the finger of God. That is, as you witness these things, you ought to know one thing. You should understand that the kingdom of God is upon you. And of course, that's a call to repent. That's a call to repent. Recognize what's standing before you. See this work and understand its implications and consequences. 
Think through what you're seeing and hearing. That's what Jesus is doing here. So in the parable of the sower, we see the establishment of the kingdom and we see by by the way that kingdom is established. It's the power of the preaching of the Word of God. The power of the preaching of the Gospel. Things we take lightly, things we take, something we take for granted often in church, something we're willing to, to supplant, replace, something where we don't want to give much time. You know, we, you know a lot of church services are, are centered more around singing and everything else, and they give just a small amount of time to the proclamation and the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. And yet what we see here, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom, kingdom of God will be established through the preaching of the Word of God. Secondly, if you look at the next parable, the next parable being the tares, the wheat and the tares. What do we see here? Jesus is sort of addressing the opposition that the kingdom of God faces. That in the kingdom of God, there will grow up both wheat and tares. And we need to see that. We don't need to be perplexed by that. You know, when people want to condemn Christians of being, you know, well, we don't go to church because of of the, the hypocrites that are there. We don't go to church because we see a bunch of people on TV claiming to be Christians and saying they're Christians and yet fornicating and blaspheming God's name, using God's name in vain and doing all of these, these sinful things. And it's just a bunch of hypocrites. Hey, tell us something we don't know. You know, that's what I want to say. Look, tell me, tell me something I don't know. The church and the kingdom of God is a mixture of those who are real and those who are false. And you shouldn't be confused by this. Now, you should make sure you're not one of the false ones. You have a duty and a moral obligation to, call, to make your election sure and to make sure that you do what you need to do, exhibit the faith you need to exhibit, and, and, and bear the good fruit that you need to bear so you don't want to just be, you know, you don't want to be numbered among those who are just like everybody else. You need to be different. The Word of God changes people. You can't remain the same and still claim to be a Christian. So we have the wheat and the tares. We have, if you will, the mustard seed. And what Jesus does here is He's addressing the extensiveness of the kingdom. I mean, there's a saying, look, Jesus, this isn't going to last long. Jesus is going to come teaching. The Pharisees are going to stop it. They're going to get rid of Him. Jesus said, let me tell you something about the kingdom of God. It's unstoppable. It's like a mustard seed. Yes, it's small. It's fragile. You know, it's not impressive at all. And what's impressive about Jesus standing on an, a, 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 the pulpit of a boat preaching the parables? There's nothing impressive about that. He don't even have a temple. He doesn't have classrooms. And he doesn't have all the technology. He just doesn't have the sophistication. He doesn't have the degrees. Jesus wasn't a, um, you know, a member of the Pharisees. He didn't have the credentials. Nothing impressive here. And yet what Jesus says is the extensiveness of this kingdom is going to fill the whole earth. 
Going back and recognizing the, the prophecy of Daniel, recognizing that the stone cut without hands would come and destroy all the other kingdoms, if you will, and rise up and be greater and grander than all of them. So he deals with the mustard seed. He deals with the leaven, dealing with the nature of the kingdom. He's like, he says the kingdom of God is like leaven in the lump of dough. What does it do? It's, it's something that happens slowly but surely leveling the whole lump. He says the kingdom of God is like that in the earth. Sometimes it's going to look as if it's non-existent, but all of a sudden you're going to see 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years later, guess what you're going to see? You're going to see the development and the establishment and the benefits of Christianity, which is what we've witnessed today. You know, all those things that Christianity has brought to the Western world, the deconstructionists want to tear down. They don't want it. They don't want what we would call traditional marriage. They don't want these traditional authority figures. They don't want these traditional established. They want to tear them down and rebuild them in their own image of the devil, in the own image of sin, in the own image in the name of progressivism, and all of these other things. That's exactly what Satan does. He's always opposing the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying the Western world in a nutshell is the kingdom of God, but what I'm saying is it you would have to be willingly ignorant not to see the benefits that Christianity has brought to the Western world. Through medicine, literature, art, everything, Christianity has revolutionized education. Education. The pagans weren't educated. The Christians came. And, and by the impetus of reading and writing and passing on the Word of God and conveying the Word of God and rhetoric and speaking, guess what? That has changed the world. So we have this... Leaven. We have the parable of the hidden treasure. The hidden treasure teaches us the, the benefits of seeking this kingdom. What did Jesus teach in a portion of the Gospels? You know, when he's questioned, you know, well, I have to see, I have to leave my family, I have to leave my job to follow Jesus. You know, he's the the, the roaming the rabbi, the roaming teacher, if you will. And what did Jesus say? No man leaves family or mother or job that doesn't receive eternal life, something better. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, is to what benefits are you willing to live with and trade off? Are you willing to trade those things that would keep you from the gospel, keep you from the kingdom? to trade for the kingdom. So we see Jesus is going to teach us about the benefits of the kingdom of God. And yet we have the pearl of great price. What are we taught there? Jesus says there's great value in the kingdom of God. Great value in the kingdom of God. What does he do? He goes and sells everything he has and he buys that pearl. He says there's nothing that you can spend that won't be exceeded by the benefit of knowing Christ. And that's what we see throughout all of Scripture, right? Truth, knowledge, wisdom, understanding is better than gold and silver. Better than gold and silver. The dragnet. Casting off the net and pulling up all these different kinds of fish and whatnot. And what does he say here? That this kingdom has a consummation point. There's a termination. That there is going to be a, a, a legal, listen to me, a legal and judicial end to this kingdom. What do I mean by that? That is, there's going to be a great sorting out at the end. There's going to be a great segregating. God is going to segregate 
at the end based upon those who have believed and trusted in Him and bear fruit and those who have not. There's going to be a great divide that takes place. Dividing that takes place. Some are going to enter into eternal life and eternal fellowship with Christ and the Father and the Spirit. And some are going to enter into an eternity of suffering and torment based upon the justness of God saying, I offered salvation. You did not turn from your sins. You rejected the truth. And now you will be punished as a consequence of your rejection. Now, in a nutshell, we can see how this forms a great picture of the kingdom of God. The second thing we need to understand about the parable of the sower, that it just, you know, not answers not only how the kingdom will be established, but in the context, the parable comes in that great heat of controversy and opposition. And we need to ask the question, well, how successful can the kingdom of God be when there is such opposition? And that may be a question you ask even today. How successful can the church be? Now, I use the church because this is sort of the visible place where the Word of God is preached, where God's grace is at least exhibited in the means of grace and the sacraments and the preaching of the gospel and the fellowship of the saints and prayer and praise and all of those things. How successful can the church be when the world offers such great opposition to it? We need to think about that. Thirdly, we need to understand that the kingdom of God suffers tremendous opposition, yet is still established, and yet still grows, and yet, listen, listen to me, men and women still seek it, even when there's great opposition. So take heart and be encouraged. And that's what we're going to learn in the parable of the sower. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that Satan does not rest when it comes to opposing uh, his attempt to destroy, his attempt to, to pollute, to contaminate, to, in any way to derail, defame, uh, ridicule, minimize the kingdom of God. Satan doesn't sleep. We saw him before the fall in the garden attacking the kingdom of God, coming with his craftiness, able to use his uh, word, his, his ability to wordsmiths to do what? Turn and twist and fabricate a question that probably and did confuse Eve and didn't understand. What do you mean? Are you saying, you know, I doubt very seriously Eve would have ever wholeheartedly said, oh yeah, I want to, I, yeah, I'm God. He, he deceived her. He deceived her. And he continues to do so all the time. If he can't motivate you to trick you to believe and to act as if you're God, brothers and sisters, he'll, he'll motivate you with fear. He'll keep you out of church before fear, for reasons of fear. And we're going to look at some of these things. Well, let's do this. Remember that those who oppose the kingdom of God, those who would oppose preaching, those who would oppose the church, those who would uh, you know, to be active against the church are the sons of the devil. I'm going to give you several passages of Scripture. Ephesians 2, chapter Ephesians 2, Acts 13, 10, John 8, 44. John 8, 44 is where the Jesus looks at the Pharisees and He goes, you know why you oppose Me? You know why you don't listen to Me? Because you are of your father the devil. That's why. 
You know why you don't listen to me? And you don't listen to Moses? You don't listen to Abraham? Because you're not even of my father. You are of your father, the devil. And the devil is always opposing the kingdom of God, the preaching of the gospel, the truth. Always. Remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe several months ago now, I said Satan is never ever going to foster real religion, true religion, true worship, real repentance. If he fosters any of those things, it's going to be a half-hearted, half-understood, half-truth kind of thing. Because that's exactly what he does. He wants to pollute it. He wants to contaminate it. He wants, it to, he wants to synchronize error with truth. And we're going to see that in the parable of the wheat and tares. He wants to add something to it or take away something from it in order that it won't be exactly what it ought to be. And if he can get you one to that, wedded to that, he still has you. Keep that in mind. Let's make several affirmations as we work through this parable. The first affirmation I want to make as we look at this parable of the sower is that we need to affirm God's mercy. We want to affirm God's mercy. Now look at the parable with me. We want to affirm God's mercy. That is, God's mercy is on display, if you're looking for it, in the parable of the sower. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at the parable itself. Notice what he says. He says, now, um, a sower went out to sow. Notice where some of the seed fell. By the roadside. Rocky places. Look at verse 7. Fell among the thorns. Now let me ask you this. Now this is an agricultural parable. This is a parable built upon the activity of an agricultural activity. When a man is sowing seed in his field, he doesn't sow the road. Does he? You know why? We're not going to yield anything. He's wasting seed. He's wasting money. There's no benefit. There's no profit. And he's about production. He goes out to sow the field because he wants the highest yield harvest possible. And so in the three places described by Christ where seed fell, that's the God's mercy. Because guess what? Even when God calls His elect... The Word of God is sown in such a way that many, many, many come in contact with the Word of Truth. And based upon being made free will creatures, have a decision to make concerning that Gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is God's mercy. Now here's a couple of things we need to understand about God's mercy. First of all, when we think about God's mercy, we need to think about God's mercy from a sovereignly free God. What do I mean by free? Well, He's certainly free from sin. He's not polluted or contaminated by sin. That's not what I mean when I mean free. What I mean is sovereignly free. He's not bound or obligated to offer salvation to anyone. When we talk about God's freedom, what we're talking about and what we should understand is that God is not bound or obligated to save anyone. It's out of mercy for the sinner that God is moved to exhibit His power 
to save sinners, to make them from being sinful creatures to being children of God. That God acts freely. He's not obligated. There's nothing manipulating God. There's nobody twisting God's arm. There's nothing in any of God's fallen creation that excites God that says, I think that person deserves to be saved. Nothing of that sort happens. God stands free and separate from His creation, His fallen creation, but yet has chosen out of His own sovereign freedom to enter into this world and offer salvation. I want your heart to be stirred by that. Because the first thing we need to recognize is... You know what? There's nothing in me that has called God to come and save me. Nothing. I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing that would entice God to come and see this servant, this pitiful, pitiful, wretched sinner worthy of salvation. So God is free. You know, there's a lot of people that would accuse God of being, you know, not fair, unjust. But brothers and sisters... God is free to save few or many. God is free to save none or all. God stands free from any obligation because the plight that man finds himself in, he he made for himself by his own free choices. God's choice to save some is not the question. The question whether, the question rather should be from us is why did He choose to save any? Why did Jesus, why did God in His Son Jesus Christ send Him into this world to save anybody? To become man, to take on to take on Himself flesh, to be born in a manger, to be raised in obscurity, to endure the hostility and hatred and malice of the religious establishment. Why would God send His Son into the world to suffer all of this to save wretched sinners? Now you need to be staggered by that question. And never allow your lips to accuse God of being unjust at all. For we see this seed that falls by the wayside. We see the seed that falls upon the rocky places. And we see the seed that falls upon the thorns. And we know that that is only God's grace and mercy. God's mercy is on display, brothers and sisters, as we look at the, those who have the, the, the come in contact with the Word. Now let's think about this. I want to put in perspective, or at least I want to personify the seed that falls by the wayside. Who is this wayside hearer? Well, that's Mr. Indifferent. Mr. Indifferent. He's not religious. He's not a secularist. He's just indifferent. He doesn't see a need for salvation or religion. He doesn't see a need for church. And certainly he doesn't see the need to have anybody preach to him. Secondly, we have uh, the rocky places. And what do we see there? We see Mr. Convenient. 
You see, Mr. Convenient sees a little bit, and he, he, he likes the idea that some of his family have been saved, and he likes the idea that some of his friends have been saved, and they're interested in religion, and he's caught up in the excitement, and he's caught up in sort of the, the newness of faith and salvation. So he goes along with everyone else. But what happens to Mr. Convenient when, well, when religion isn't so convenient? What happens? Falls by the wayside. And then we have that which falls among the thorns. And what would we call this hero? Mr. Worldly. Now the Bible tells us, right? Jesus tells us that Mr. Worldly has a desire to be saved. He, in fact, that's the, that's the comparison. Now I want you to compare yourself here to these hearers. The comparison is he has a he sees his sin. I'm a sinner. He knows it. He knows he needs transformation and reformation of life. He knows he needs to be a better husband. She needs to be a, a better wife or a better father and a mother, a daughter, a son, and a, a better friend. I, I need to be a better moral person. I, I need salvation. I need what's being offered in the gospel. He understands because the text tells us that, you know, these desires in the long run can't compete with the worldly desires. You see, that person goes right up to almost bearing fruit and falls away. What, how does he fall away? He falls away because of worry. What does he worry about? Money. Popularity. He worries about, well, am I going to have enough money to retire? Am I going to have enough money to do this? Am I going to be popular enough? I don't want... You know, when it becomes so hard to follow Christ, falls away. And never, I mean, he comes right up to bearing fruit, but he doesn't bear fruit. Because, see, there's only one that bears fruit in the parable, right? And it's the one that the Bible says Jesus in his explanation said, that's the one where the seed fell on the what? Good soil. What's the good soil? The good soil was the soil that was intended for the seed. That's God's elect. Now, I need to stress that, brothers and sisters, because the question I want you thinking right now is, am I the elect? And I'm going to show you what the text says. How do you know you're the elect? By the fruit you bear. By the good works you perform. By the commandments you keep. These are the things that describe the one that, where the seed and the, and the word of God falls on the good soil and bears the power of transformation and a new creation in Christ. You know, if you want to be a new creation in Christ, you've got to look at your fruit. We're not, we don't, we're not judging the heart. You know what we judge? Fruit. Fruit. What fruit are you, what fruit do you bear? That's the question I always ask. Well, <clears throat> secondly, we want to affirm that man has a moral duty to receive and believe the gospel when they come in contact with it. Man has a moral duty. Listen to me. Man has a moral duty when they come in contact with the gospel, to receive it and believe it, to repent of their sins, to heed the call of the gospel. Let me illustrate it. I think all of you here this morning would believe that you have a moral obligation to protect your person from harm. Right? That there is a moral obligation that if somebody is going to attack you, you should defend yourself 
or defend the innocent with you, that who, uh, someone who could not protect themselves to protect them. Now listen to me. If you have a moral obligation to protect your person from harm and injury, how much more an obligation to protect your soul from destruction? I mean, I'm speaking to all of our gun enthusiasts, you know, who say one of the, the, the planks we hear in the world, right, is, well, nobody's going to take my gun. Nobody's going to take away the Second Amendment. I have a right. I don't know what they say. I have a right to defend myself. And I commend, I, I, brother, you do. Yes, sir, you do. But if you have that right, how much more? of an obligation than you have when you come in contact with the gospel to heed the warning of Jesus Christ to flee from the wrath to come. Danger. If I have an obligation to address this immediate danger, there's there's still a moral obligation to address that far out danger. Amen? Amen? I'm hoping to show you logically how this plays out. Man has a moral obligation to exercise his or her choice in embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm emphasizing choice because men are free agents and rational creatures. God made us free. You say, well, pastor, we're reformed and Calvinist and we don't believe man is free. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have a chapter in our confession of faith that speaks of the free will of man. The problem it lies within what governs that will. The problem isn't man's will because he does what he or she wills to do. You and I every day make choices and we will to do things in what do And we follow up with doing those things. But yet our choices and our will is governed by our nature. And after the fall, we are all fallen creatures who are enslaved to a fallenness of our nature where we desire that which is bad, that which is sinful, that which is destructive. We desire it. We desire it. And I say the word destructive, what I mean by this is man and men and women will commit their lives to the life of destruction, calling it good the whole time. That's, that's the nature that enslaves the will. Nevertheless, everybody, everybody exercises free choice. They, they exercise their choice, but their choices are governed by their nature. And we must understand and affirm that man is a free and rational creature and should employ all his faculties in remedying his fallen condition. He alone bears the responsibility for his sin. Why? Because man made a free choice to do it. What did James teach us? Where does sin come from? The heart. We sin because we choose to sin. And everything we do, we freely make our choice to do it. And that's the point here. Notice the indifferent hearer there in the parable. 
This person's not interested in religion at all. He doesn't see a need for salvation. And yet, because he has come in contact with the gospel, Jesus will be just to say to him, Woe to you, sir. Woe to you, ma'am. It will be better off for some tribe down in South America or Africa who has never heard the gospel than for you. Woe to you. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for this city who doesn't want to hear the word preached. Why? Because they had a moral obligation to remedy their fallenness, to remedy the destruction that awaits them. They had a moral obligation to preserve in themselves the imago dei, the image of God. That's a moral obligation. You and I bear that responsibility to see the image of God in us thrive and grow and respond to the truth of God's Word. And when any person rejects the Gospel, they are. They are making a choice for destruction. The convenient hearer runs with the crowd. He sees the, the influence and the movements and they, he goes from one setting to another. He just is, is going with the flow, if you will, of easy religion, if it, as it were. But as long as there's nothing required. You know, isn't it something, I've heard this as a pastor. Well, what's the, what's the least we can do and still be a church member? I've had that question. Well, what's the least we can do? Who would ask that question? When, well, listen, if I see God's mercy and it is as I've already described it and I know my need and I know I don't deserve it, but yet I have it. I've come in contact with it and I want to make a choice to believe and trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed and begin to bear fruit and glorify my Father in heaven because that's what Jesus says. Glorify God and bear fruit. And I want to do those things. Why would I ask what's the least I could do? Why shouldn't it be what can I do? What can I do? I want to do what I can do. But that's the convenient here. It's all convenience. The worldly here, of course, we've explained it, but there's something else I want to add to him because he lives in the what if world. Well, what if? Well, I don't want to, you know, uh, they, they, they completely, the desires for this world completely shape and choke out the desires for truth, the desire for salvation, and desire to be sanctified. What if? What if? What if? What if? Brothers and sisters, this parable also affirms for us that not all sinners are equal. All sinners are not equal. Notice the parable talks about the indifferent person, the seed falling by the wayside. He's obviously riddled with more sin than the others. Why? How do we know this? Because of the heinousness of sin. Listen, the very object of sin is this, to keep you separated from God. Because what did sin do when it came into the world? It separated man from God. That's the object of sin. And sin, that which means, right, take it to its conclusion, sin, when we participate in it, knowingly or unknowingly, sin will continue to harden and distort our 
rational, our, our, our reason, our perceptions, our judgments, our discernments, and all those things. This person doesn't even see his need. Because what happens? Satan comes and what takes away what has been sown. Now listen, where did Satan come from? Well, whenever we are participating in known sin, we're inviting Satan to come and be a part of our lives. Yeah. Rebels are the children of the devil. I, you know, you need to realize that. Rebels are the children of the devil. Not all, sin, not all sinners are equal. We see the, the, but all sin is deadly. We see those who, even the convenient here, I mean, you know, sees a need for some religion. That's not a bad thing. I'm not opposed to it. But, you know, but I'm not going to do it if it's going to cost me more than I'm willing to give. So, that's a better, he's better than the other one. But he's still not good. Sin dulls our senses. Sin will dull your senses. Listen, young people, old people, whoever you are, if you're going to participate in sin, it is going to dull your religious capacity. It's going to dull your discernment. It's going to dull your sensitivity. And it's going to make your heart dull and insensitive to, to the truth, but to the very call to repent. You don't believe me? Look at Adam and Eve. They fell into sin, and what did you know? God had an appointed time to come and meet with them and worship. It was called the cool of the day. What did they do at that appointed time once sin entered into the world? They hid. Why? Because sin had distorted and dulled and just 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 blunted their their discernment. What would a real discernment? I said, I fail. I need remedy. I can't save myself. I mean, it distorted their whole perception of their relationship and separated them from God. When he says, I don't run to God. He's the only one that can save me. No, I'm going to hide from him. That's what sin does. Brothers and sisters, we need to affirm that only those who understand their sin and guilt and hear the gospel truth preached to them and and realize its implications, realize what it costs, pick up your cross, realize what is required, the perseverance of that faith, they are the ones who are saved and bear fruit, the good soil. I've already mentioned the deadening aspect of sin. No need to talk about that more. Let me just bring this to some form of closure. Mentioning these points, I don't have a time to flesh them out, but I do want to mention them, and that is we need to affirm that all Christians are not alike either. Notice in the parable, we see that there is... The good soil, but the good soil produces some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. All Christians are not equal. And this fruitfulness of that of the Christian is based upon God's sovereign will and God's grace and God's gifts and 
The empowerment of the Spirit and God's resources. Let me give you an example of what I mean. All Christians freely are justified and saved. Done. Equally. Saved. Justified. But not all Christians are gifted equally. Some Christians are gifted with a tremendous amount of intellect. Some Christians are gifted with callings that others are not. Some Christians are gifted by resources and circumstances. Do you think that you are more privileged and favored in one sense and gifted than somebody who's living in a very obscure, closed country with the gospel that can't go worship on Sunday? Who have to hide to worship and maybe can only meet once a month? Once a three months? Look at your gifts. Now, it'd be a shame if they bore more fruit than you. It'd be a shame if those who had less resources and opportunity to the means of grace would bear more fruit than such a privileged group of Americans. We can meet anytime we want. We can meet as long as we want. We, we have a tremendous amount of resources at our disposal and are making a living. And yet we have to ask the question, where do we fall in the arena of fruitfulness? But not all Christians are equal. Not all Christians are equal. I think about men like John Calvin, diseased and infirmed as he was. Look at what he wrote. Volume upon volume upon volume. Preached every day, just about every day. And he died, and I think, I think the equivalency of leaving maybe, I may get this wrong, but I mean leaving like $500. That's what he left. He left a desk, a Bible, and some books, and a little bit of money. That's all he left in this world. And you know what? The world, in the world's eyes, he, he, he poor and poverty soul. But yet not only was he gifted by God and, and, and as an instrument of shaping Christianity in the Western world, we to this day benefit from his work and labors. That's, he's still bearing fruit. Think about your provisions and resources. Well, I need to mention this, and we will close for sure, but seventhly, we need to affirm that the power, is the, that the gospel is the power of God and salvation. No amount of opposition, no matter how fierce it is, uh, the depth of its malice is ever going to thwart the kingdom of God. When the gospel's preached, God's elect is going to hear and they're going to believe and they're going to be transformed and they're going to be new creations in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. The power of the gospel will go forth. The preaching of the word. Listen, this preaching of the word of God, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the greatest and most powerful weapon in the world of changing culture and society and people. When men and women believe this, they are new creations in Christ. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. When Paul talks about Sins and characters and those who have developed their own characteristics. Thieves and robbers and liars and extortionists and homosexuals and murderers and haters of parents and uh, rebels. You know what? As were some of you. But guess what? You're not that anymore. You are now a new creation in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the parable of the sower establishes 
the kingdom of God and it sets forth the power of God as it's seen in what? The sowing of the seed, the eternal word of God. And based upon how you hear it and the choices you make, I'll determine whether or not you have a future in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.